Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, we have a bit of a special episode. It's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing from 1969. The Journal's been publishing stories, videos, and podcasts, and all sorts of stuff about the history and legacy of Apollo 11. But on this show, we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to look at some of the ways that the technology invented and worked on and required to get a man on the moon in 1969 still affects the tech that we all use now in 2019. It turns out there's more of that than you think. Here with me to do so, since Joanna Stern is still gone, Christopher Mims. Hey, Christopher. Hey there. Well, are you are you a moon guy? Like, is, is space and the moon landing like a thing that you love in general, even when it's not the 50th anniversary? I've had a personal renaissance. I think it's the Apollo 11 anniversary. I've been watching some stuff, watched Apollo 13 with the kids, went to the Air and Space Museum. I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old and nostalgic, but this stuff is cool. I agree. I had the thing that really did it for me was there was a documentary that came out at the very beginning of this year. I think it's just called Apollo 11. That's like all this found footage that turns out to be amazingly high resolution of like the people who were there and in the control room. And it was it was this sort of visceral experience, kind of like you were actually watching it happen live. And ever since then, I've gone back into like my eighth phase in my lifetime of being totally obsessed with the space program. And it's been very fun. Yeah, that's a that's an astonishing uh, documentary. I highly recommend Apollo Eleven. You can yeah. stream it. Oh yeah, I saw it in IMAX too, which was one of the cooler things I've ever done. But I right because it's shot on seventy again, millimeter. I'm sure it was amazing with the sound system. But even on a little screen streamed, it was pretty pretty special. Totally. Okay, so we have two stories this week. And first up, I want to start by talking about the spacesuit. So the Apollo 11 spacesuit was an incredible thing. It's made of mylar and nylon and Teflon and even fiberglass. It had to keep astronauts cool without being cold and warm without being hot and had to be super flexible and easy to work in, but totally impenetrable, even for elements that designers didn't know existed. The suit that they came up with actually weighed 180 pounds on Earth, but luckily that translated to only 30 in the lesser gravity on the moon. A lot of the things that were created to make those suits work turned out to have lots of other uses. You know those huge white sort of tent-like roofs, the one you might see over a stadium or a concert venue? There's a good chance those are made of a fabric called beta cloth, which is basically Teflon-coated fiberglass. That was designed for the spacesuit. One of the companies that developed it, by the way, was Corning, which now makes the glass on top of your phone's screen. But still, the most spacesuity thing you might own now is a pair of sneakers. And that's in large part thanks to our first guest, Al Gross. I could explain, but it'll be more fun to get him to. And he's here now. Hey, Al. Hi. How are you? Very good. Uh, yes, I started working on the human engineering aspects of sports equipment relative to spacesuits. I started with ski boots of all types, and we also did ski gloves, the insulation and in ski outfits, et cetera. And from the ski boots, I went to the sneakers, mainly because it's a larger market. I had played college basketball, and I'm a runner. And met much of the ski boot technology from spacesuits also fit into athletic shoes very well. I had done these projects for Nike, Adidas, Converse, Asics, Timberland, Yukon, via many, many companies in the athletic shoe business over the years, and I continue to do so. 
Wow. Okay. So let's let's before we actually get to some of that, let's let's back up fifty or so years. Tell us kind of about what you were doing at NASA in the in the sixties, and in particular in the run up to Apollo eleven. What was your what was your job? Everything I did was Apollo. I was in school during Mercury and Gemini, and I'm sort of a child of Apollo. I started at Cape Canaveral working on the Saturn V rocket. I was a launch engineer for two years at the Cape. We man-rated the vehicle with the first two unmanned Saturn V launches before we felt it was safe enough to put a crew on board. The first crew was Apollo 8, which was the Frank Borman voyage around the moon where he quoted from the Bible when we first saw Earthrise appearing from the dark side of the moon. I was then recruited to move to Houston, Texas and become the lead systems design engineer of the spacesuit program. Of course, at that time, I knew nothing whatsoever about spacesuits, but neither did anybody else, so (laughs) it wasn't too much of a disadvantage. There was a history of pressure suits with the Air Force, and a lot of Air Force personnel were there as well. So I was the head lead design engineer of the spacesuit program in Houston, and eventually I moved up to the factory where the spacesuits are made, which is in Dover, Delaware, and became the uh, design engineer on the production floor of the spacesuits. I needed the production experience to move into private industry, which you cannot get at the space centers themselves. So I was lead design engineer over manufacturing of the spacesuits as well as being at the space center in Houston over systems and design. And and what is it like to build a spacesuit? I mean, you're, you're designing a thing that no one's ever worn before for a place they've never been before out of materials that no one has ever used before. What? How does that process work? Like, what is the what is the trial and error like when you're trying to design a spacesuit? Purely fun because it's human. It goes on a human. So we could get inside the spacesuits. We could test the fingers of the gloves, the elbows of the arms, the knees that would go on the legs. All of these things are called mobility joints, which are the most important part of a spacesuit. So because it's human factors engineering, you're getting inside of your design. You can feel it, touch it, smell it. It's unlike driving a car. Like you design a car, it's partly human engineering, but it's not so close and intimate as a suit is. One of the things I've read is that things like knees and elbows were hugely challenging and involved a lot of sort of inventing brand new things to make it work. But what, when you're thinking about designing a spacesuit really for the first time, was it obvious what the hardest parts were going to be? What were those things? Easy, the mobility joints. I'm going to say the shoulders, the hips, the gloves. In other words, you want to get in something that when it's pressurized, which normally would make it stiff and not, and not flexible at all, You want it to be flexible only in certain places, and those are the mobility joints, and that's the toughest part of the job, especially the ones that are three-dimensional, like your shoulders. They rotate, they move in three different planes, like your elbow only goes in one direction. That would be the easiest one. The shoulder would be the hardest one because of all the mobility ranges and rotates, et cetera. So all of that is uh, the most important part. Once the pressure suit envelope is done, then you're merely insulating it. So all the thermal insulation and all that stuff is kind of a second thought to the basic pressure suit itself. Okay, so building something that was totally insulated and would keep them safe but didn't have to move around or be you know, friendly to human motion would be easier, it seems like. But you had to build something people could actually like walk around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In other words, uh, see if I can come up with something. Hmm. Well, it's like, let's say it's a scuba suit underwater, but it does everything you want. It makes you feel as if you're not even in a suit. We're trying to achieve the nude body feeling. 
And when it's pressurized, you're working against pressure. The suit is extremely rigid everywhere. And getting all that to work, the human engineering part is the hardest part. And then the insulation and all that stuff goes on the outside to keep you safe. And it, of course, has to accommodate the same motion that the pressure envelope does as well. Got it. And is it obvious in the middle of building something like that, that the things that you're working on are going to have application outside of just building spacesuits? Or are you so laser focused on that one thing that you're not even necessarily worrying about? We, we were so laser focused, we, we wouldn't even know if there'd ever be another use. Our focus was as good as it could get for the job. If it could be used in any other place, we didn't know, we didn't care. And it wasn't until the program was coming to an end till we started realizing that there could be many space spinoffs of this technology, which in my case, I specialized in. At what point does it occur to you that, oh, all this stuff I've been working on might be interesting to other people who aren't just trying to survive in space? Pretty much at the end of the program. I was there through Apollo 17. We landed on the moon six times. Apollo 13, of course, did not make it. We also had done all the spacesuits for the Skylab program, the ASTP, the Apollo Soyuz docking with the Russians, and the early versions of the space shuttle suits. And at that time, I decided to, to move to Aspen, Colorado, take up skiing and go into commercial products. So it was at that point, really 1973, 1974, that I started focusing on the knowledge that I had, particularly materials, information, and human factors design, putting it into sports equipment, because I had a background of playing basketball and running, and I love sports in general. You were just done at that point. You're like, I have, I've put people on the moon. It's the 70s. Where else can I use my skills? Yes. Moving to Aspen and go, going into the ski industry was my goal, and everything I did was based on skiing. And then because I ended up specializing in ski boots, which is the hardest article for skiing and more like the spacesuits, because the ski boot has a rigid shell, which is non-human. The spacesuit, when it's pressurized, it's rigid. That's non-human of adapting things like that to the human body and making them work. So ski boots were the real big focus. And I worked for four different companies, Nordica, Dinafit, Solomon, and Reikley. And probably the biggest invention for NASA's spinoff was in the Reikley Flexon ski boot, which is the most popular model ever made, sold between three and 400,000 pairs a year for nearly 20 years. And it was based on the convoluted mobility joints of the spacesuits, which are sort of like a bellows. It's designed the bend, but in this case, bending in rigid plastic for a ski boot versus bending in inflated, pressurized, and therefore rigid convolutes in a spacesuit designed the bend. So the joints were like bellows, and I put that in a ski boot. So that was the first real major spinoff that had a very, very large commercial success. Also, many other things, like in Nike athletic shoes, for example, the blow molding that we used to make the visors was stress-free molding. The convolutes were made with a dipping process. We never use molding techniques like injection molding and compression molding, which are used throughout industry because you have built-in stresses. So, for example, the Nike aerosol was blow-molded. Many of the products I've done, the Avia compression chamber was blow-molded. It's stress-free, stronger, better materials because of the pounding it takes under the feet, like playing basketball in a Nike shoe and a Via shoe where you're coming down with rebounds and the pounding, etc. To have the durability required some of the processes we use in the spacesuits. Can you explain a little bit more about that, actually? Because I think the, the idea of the way that we manufacture shoes now is so different from what it was 
before that I, I think, can you sort of help understand what shoes were like when you started working on them and, and kind of how you rethought the way they should be made? Oh, well, uh, you couldn't be more correct. When I went into the shoe industry in the, the winter of 1973-74, I, I saw shoes as just ancient devices, really. Even if you go into the patent search on footwear, it'll, it'll say shoes, boots, and leggings. So just those titles give you an idea of how, how ancient, in my mind at least, the technology is. Shoes, boots, and leggings. And here I come out of NASA. So I, along with other people, had everything to do, I believe, with making the shoes what they are today. Often I'd be at a presentation and people would say, oh, we're just making shoes. We're not building spaceships. I said, oh, yeah, (laughs) I think we are. And that was my attitude. (laughs) And I'm really curious about, does this, you know, we keep hearing about, you know, next generation spacesuits. You see these sleek designs. People talk about what we're going to need for Mars. It's going to have to be a quantum leap over what we had for the moon. What have you seen happening in the industry? Like what are the big potential innovations that the unlocking technologies that could get us these, these uh, sleeker suits? We're not going to have sleeker suits. Everyone wants them. Of course we do too. The astronauts wanted the nude feeling in a suit, which we all do. And I was in spacesuits probably more than any other engineer in the program just by designing them. They wanted the spray-on suit, things like that, which are pipe dreams. We wanted them just as well. But the reasons the suits can't, can't be sleek is they have to be pressurized because there's, no, there's a vacuum in space and you got to provide a livable atmosphere inside of the spacesuit. When you pressurize it, everything wants to go circular. It's like blowing up a balloon. It wants to go in a circle. So no matter how sleek you make it to the body, as soon as you pressurize it, immediately it's going to be larger than the body. You're, you're working inside of a balloon, so to speak. So the sleek suits are great. And the reason for the pressure is so the oxygen in your bloodstream doesn't doesn't boil off immediately. You need to have a pressure to keep the gases inside your bloodstream, which would be oxygen, inside the bloodstream where they belong so you don't get the bends like with nitrogen leaving the bloodstream coming up, you know, from an ocean dive. Now, the other thing you could do is use physical pressure, but there's certain parts of the body that just don't adapt very well to physical pressure, if you know what I mean. <laughs> In other words, so we so we use we use gas pressure, and because of the gas pressure, it goes circular, and it won't be sleek. So as long as we're colonizing Mars and and going out in space, we're always going to have these big bulky suits. You think? Unfortunately, yeah. Unless we can come up with another way to keep the oxygen in the bloodstream, in particular in those very sensitive areas of the body where you can't use the mechanical pressure necessary to do so. So the gas pressure is more friendly. And the only problem is you have an inflated suit. And what's happening now, the spacesuits for Apollo and Skylab are custom-made, so they weren't so bad. For shuttle, because they're sized and you have all the different sizes of suits for the different people, they're not custom, and there's more hardware in the suits. Basically, the suit has drifted farther and farther from a sleek design as the years have gone on. But at least the, the moon boots seem to be getting better, which is a, a solid step in the right direction, so to speak. I'm not sure about that one, No, but I'd have to take no. a look. I'll say this. For the foot, you have so many complex curves that when you pressurize it, it doesn't look that bad, you know, relative to the foot. And we here on Earth are getting all kinds of things that look like moon boots and kind of work like moon boots, it seems like, thanks to, to what you're talking about. I feel like all this stuff is getting spacier and more impressively manufactured. In the athletic shoe business that I'm involved in, yes, everything we're trying to do is lighter weight, more functional, et cetera. 
And uh, I've worked on many, many, many things in that area. That's what I do for a living. All right. Well, Al, thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate you taking all the time. This is really great. Very good. Thank you, guys. Okay, coming up in just a second, we're going to talk about cameras and how to make a TV show from the freaking moon. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash W-S-J. Okay, next up, when you think of Apollo 11 and the moon landing, there are probably certain images that come to mind. Neil Armstrong stepping down off the ladder, muttering something about steps and mankind, and Buzz Aldrin planting the flag. And fun fact, by the way, I recently learned that the flag on the moon actually got knocked over by the rocket blast as Apollo 11 left the moon's surface, and everyone's pretty sure it disintegrated anyway, which was kind of a crushing thing to learn. But that's beside the point. All these images, these iconic moments in American and human history were captured by some of the most remarkable cameras anyone had ever built. I mean, we live streamed from the moon in 1969. You can't do that on Twitch even now. Uh, and as with everything we've been talking about today, the, the innovation required to make those cameras work is still noticeable in the cameras that we use today. So to find out more, we have Jennifer Lavasser, the space history curator at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Jennifer, you're in a Dunkin' Donuts in a Walmart, and, and you're talking to us, and I, I'm appreciative that you are here. This is true. The job does not stop just because I've gone on vacation, at least not this week. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. It's a dangerous time to take vacation on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. It is. <laughs> so, okay, so I want to start with the TV broadcast, because I feel like I had never really considered how incredible an achievement it was to broadcast live television from the freaking moon in 1969. Uh, was this as big a deal at the time as it seems like I, I realize now? Like, was it as wild to everyone then that we could do this? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's wilder than you really realize because at the time, television cameras that were used in TV studios were 400 pounds and they had to shrink that down into something that could be picked up by a human being on the moon. And so you basically had to make it about seven pounds. And to do that in a span of just a few years was an incredible accomplishment by Westinghouse, who provided that particular camera for that mission. And it also had to travel 240,000 miles back to Earth. So this is no small feat. This is a really, it is a big leap. It is a massive leap. And I think the fact that we were able to, people were able to watch it live on their TV screens at home all around the world, it's just fantastic and, and really doesn't even seem like it really could have happened in that particular time. But if you can go to the moon, you can broadcast from there too. <laughs> That's fair. So, and actually, I mean, the, the broadcast piece of it is one thing that, that I found really interesting in researching all of this is there was so much to worry about in going to the moon and just getting there and making sure everything worked that th there was maybe more thought than I would have expected given to the cameras and the broadcasting and that kind of like, why was it important and, and worth all the resources of making sure that we could get great images and video and live stream TV and stuff like why was that such a key part of the plan when we had so many other things to deal with just to get people to the moon? Well, you know, this is a, a years long process and it was something that was at the request of a president who had been assassinated. And by the end of the 1960s with this 
deadline looming over their head. You know, it wasn't something that was going to happen in isolation without anybody watching because that would have sort of, you know, not really proven the point that the United States had put a massive amount of money and effort into something and made it happen and really accomplished this seemingly impossible thing. And to do that, to have evidence of it, in the late 1960s, of course, you had to have television. Television was part of 95% of the homes in America at that point. And so to have especially a television signal to send back was crucial to proving it and to making it seem as though it had really been worth the investment, worth the effort, worth taxpayer dollars for that matter. And so NASA really had to do it. And it wasn't really something that anybody wanted to do. It's an extra layer of work. The astronauts need to get there and get home safely. But to be able to share it was something I think even Neil Armstrong appreciated. He, I think, had an appreciation for the fact that he wasn't doing this in isolation, even if he was up there with just one other person. Hmm. Okay. Give me a sense of kind of what the, what the gear setup looked like. I mean, there's, there's this TV camera that you're talking about from Westinghouse. But as best I understand, I mean, there were, they brought cameras with them. There were cameras on the ship itself. Like, what was kind of the gear loadout they had going on? Well, it was as minimal as possible because every pound you put into space, you have to spend a certain amount of fuel to get it there. And so they really needed cameras in particular, but a lot of other equipment to for perform multiple tasks. And so there was only one television camera for the lunar module. They had a small camera that was in the command module, but for the lunar module itself, there was a camera that was stowed inside an equipment door, basically behind a door. Once Armstrong got down to the bottom of the ladder, he pulled a cord, how very analog of him. He didn't push a button. He had to pull a cord that would release that door. And that camera in there was the same camera that they then went and moved to a stand for the rest of their EVA work for the rest of the moonwalk. And so it was a one, you know, one camera, one, you know, multiple purpose situation. And that was true for any of the cameras they had. They weren't just for science or for engineering. They were for everything. Everything had to perform double and triple duty, basically. And I'm guessing at the same time had to also be as simple as possible to, you know, set up and use because there's probably not a lot of extra time for like reading manuals for cameras on the moon. There was lots of training ahead of time. It had to be very simple and straightforward. As much that could be planned ahead of time was done ahead of time. And so the astronauts worked incredibly hard to understand everything that they needed to do. The camera also had to be easily manipulated with spacesuit gloves. When you're on the moon, you don't want to have to have tiny little switches or buttons to press. And so everything, the connection points, everything had to be very simple and very easy and, and bulky. It had to have some kind of um, heft to it. It had to have something added. And most cameras are made with very small dials on the lenses and things like that. So they had to kind of make some, kind of retroactively make some fixes to these things so that the astronaut spacesuit gloves made it possible for them to still actually operate the cameras. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking now about how hard it is to use technology when I'm wearing like winter gloves and you can't touch yes. anything anymore. I can't even imagine wearing gigantic spacesuit gloves and trying to t press buttons or do anything. Yeah, it's one of the things that we challenge our visitors to do at the National Air and Space Museum is we have some places where you can put on a glove and actually try to do something like pick up a penny or manipulate something that's very small, it is far more challenging than you might realize. 
So did all of this just work? I mean, we, we obviously we got the TV broadcast. We've seen the, the photos and the videos and stuff. But were there issues that they had in the process or did all of it just kind of magically go best case scenario? Well, it would be great if it did. But as NASA is very likely to do in every scenario possible, they will have a backup to a backup to a backup. And so there were multiple plans and multiple ways to make sure that it went right. Everything did go right on the moon side of things. It was back on Earth where things were a little tricky. They were receiving a signal from 240,000 miles away. The Earth had to be facing a certain way, so you had to make sure you had tracking stations and receiving stations basically in certain points that could then relay that signal. And so this massive network was being developed and, and was really in its new stages in the 1960s, this deep space network. And so it's a series of receiving stations, tracking stations, radio telescopes that are around the world that can work together to send these signals around. And so if you see ever see a diagram of how this all works, it's incredible. The side of the Earth that was facing the moon at the time was basically the Pacific Ocean. And so there were receiving stations in Australia and California. And really the real challenge and difficulty came in finding out which signal was the best signal. They kept switching even during the moments. There are flickers in the in the live broadcast where they're actually, those are moments where NASA is changing over which signal it is using. And so they used one from California. They used one from one of the stations in Australia called Honeysuckle Creek. And then for the most part of the actual broadcast, the bulk of the broadcast comes from a tracking station called the Parks Observatory, which is also in Australia. Wow. Okay. So they, you're not kidding when you talk about backups to backups to backups. I mean, they were, they were going to make this work no matter what they had to do. Absolutely. And then they had to send, it, it wasn't as though the signal just traveled straight from Australia to somebody's television that had to go up to satellites to get back down to Houston to then travel through cables and all kinds of other stuff. And so when you see a really fuzzy image of Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon, don't be surprised. I mean, the signal degraded considerably, and there were lots of hiccups along the way and things that had to be adjusted and dealt with that made it incredibly complicated. And the fact that it happened at all is incredible. I mean, it seems like from the research I've done that it was there was a lot of work done kind of in the run-up to these missions that led to a lot of the camera innovation in, in terms of you know, everything from the size to what you could capture and the quality and things like that. Like, Did this turn out to be kind of a, a watershed moment for camera technology, both in the space program and just kind of in general? I think, you know, there's this, the 1960s are a time when you're moving generally towards innovations like that, that make things more portable. More and more people are using 35 millimeter cameras. They're using small portable cameras, especially in terms of photojournalism. People are going, you know, kind of using multiple different formats. But the fact that the space program, the end of the 1960s, the Apollo program in particular, is happening at the same time as the Vietnam War. Television and media are really going through a fundamental change in terms of people's attention to it, its acceptance in the home, and the fact that it's starting to take the place of print media already by this time. There's definitely a move in that direction. And so the desire then becomes, if there are consumers who are after it, then the technology has to keep up. It has to get better in order to provide those things. And I think this really does, you know, the, the miniaturization, the shrinking down of that technology to something that can be put inside a spacecraft, then yeah, definitely moves us more towards having video cameras that you could have in your own home. And these are just things that weren't available at the time. And so after this time, through the 1970s and into the 80s, of course, you get smaller and smaller technology, camera technologies that can be 
very easily portable and basically consumer products instead of just something that's inside a TV studio. Did we try to do the same stuff with the subsequent Apollo missions when, when we went back to the moon? Did we have the same kind of camera tech or even better and streaming and all that, all that good stuff too? The cameras got better. There were multiple companies developing cameras because, of course, the first steps from Apollo 11 were on a black and white camera. Later cameras were, of course, color because color really improved what we could see and how we would understand it. And so later missions carried those. And then the latest missions, the last three of the Apollo missions, carried a really nice color camera that was linked to Houston directly, and they could operate it remotely from Houston to be able to point it at different things that were happening during the missions. Oh, wow. Okay. It does sound like video was really the thing. I mean, I guess obviously we have lots of stills and stuff, but they were interestingly sort of laser focused on video kind of the whole time, it sounds like. I would say that that became the most obvious thing in the moment. In the 1960s, if you were a viewer in that moment, that was very clear. That was what that was the thing to have. It was this video television feed. But what people then after those missions see and see for decades afterwards because print media is more available, it's easier to circulate images, to reproduce still images in particular. The print versions of things, the film, these 70 millimeter Hasselblad cameras that are used, those really become the technology that kind of imprints Apollo in our memories because they can be put into magazines and in newspapers and people save those and they pull them out and show their friends and they become collector's items. And so it's the printed versions of those that really kind of solidify those iconic moments. It's not necessarily, even though people have have actual memories of the first steps, those become sort of things of myth in a way, in the way they are told to generations through time. And, and the print is what we kind of look at. Now, with the invention of the internet, this is all kind of a moot point because you can circulate just about anything via YouTube. And so it really kind of opens all of that up to all of us. We can go and pick out any image we want, and any video we want from that era and watch it as many times as we want. Well, and now you're making me wonder, did astronauts get photography training? Like, did somebody teach Neil Armstrong about the, the rule of thirds and how to frame a great photo so he was getting the best stuff? Absolutely. They spent hours training on these things. In fact, the real trick for the still photography was the fact that they wouldn't have a viewfinder and that the astronauts would walk around not holding their cameras, but having them attached to a bracket on the front of their spacesuit. And so basically they needed to learn how to point and shoot without being able to see how they were framing it. They needed to have settings that were written down in their checklist so that they could just do the settings and not they, they had no way to look to see what they were capturing. And so you can imagine there are some images that aren't so great, that aren't in focus, that are pointed in strange ways at strange things, but they spent lots of time. And some of the later Apollo astronauts have actually said that they would take cameras home with them and walk around the streets of Houston and just learn and practice. And they'd take that film back and then kind of check themselves to see if they were really learning the right techniques. I mean, yeah, it is, it is about as high stakes a photography moment as you're ever going to find. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't get it wrong. And if you do, everybody's going to know about it. Right. Yeah. And they didn't have, you know, burst mode like we do on our phones. Now you can't just take 100,000 shots and assume one of them's going to get it. You kind of have to get it right the first try. Yeah. And astronauts today on the space station have digital cameras and they can download those images at will from the space station. 
And so it's so much easier to basically have, they're shooting literally thousands of photos a week and sending those down. And those can really be trimmed out just like you do when you're self-editing on your on your phone, when you're taking pictures, they can do self-editing too. And the astronauts during Apollo didn't have that luxury. Right, yeah. How many photos did they come back with? I mean, what, what kind of materials came back with the Apollo 11 crew? They had a limited, as all of them did, had a limited supply of film magazines with them. I can say that on the Apollo 17 mission, they had 23 magazines. That was the highest that they had. I think the Apollo 11 mission had just a fraction of that, but they had three magazines for the lunar surface that they were able to use, and then they had a stash of them in the command module that they used for the rest of the mission. So it's something closer to 10 or 11, I think. And so, you know, it's limited, but throughout the entire Apollo program, if you add up all of those magazines, there's about 18,000 images. I mean, even that is not, you know, compared to what you were talking about, what, what we get now, that's a pretty small amount. And it's so much of it has become like iconic imagery. Yeah. I mean, the images, those 18,000, I've probably looked at all of them a few times over. And most of them are landscape photos, just like you would think about from exploration of any other place on earth you get just landscapes and some of them stick out for certain reasons and and magazines or newspapers picked up on them and they became sort of those iconic images but the iconic ones and when you talk to when I talk to most people certainly they can name maybe a handful of the iconic images and the rest are kind of they're really for scientific study so the scientists can look at those things that the, the rocks and the soil and learn from the photos because they couldn't be there. They have the samples too, the uh, lunar material samples, but the sort of picture of them also helps them understand that, that landscape a lot differently. Thank you so much for doing this. This was, this was really great. I really appreciate it. No problem. And that's our show for the week. Thanks to Al, Jennifer, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Anthony Green, our producer, and Wilson Rothman, our editor and hero of all things. Most of all, thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message wherever you get your podcast. And this week, check out WSJ.com. We have tons of stuff from Apollo 11, and all of it is awesome. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at instantmessage at WSJ.com. We'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.